Amen. As you're being seated, those who are going to be heading to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church are dismissed at this time. Those who remain in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, as we continue our series together, Songs for Our Savior. Psalm 37. Beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, and he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, but the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All the day long he is gracious and he lends. And his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good so that you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you and uh, exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man. And behold, the upright for the man of peace will have a posterity. The transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength 
in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers, delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the goodness and the kindness that you give to us because of your word. Father, help us to see this morning that Jesus is our true security, our true peace, our true hope, our true joy in this life and in the next. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at the idea of Jesus being our security. And the first thing that we want to see from verses 1 through 8 is do not fret. I'm going to pause and drink water while I let that settle in on the crowd. Do not fret. We're going to get to this, but it's such a big point in this psalm that David says it three times in eight verses. Now, I don't have to tell you this. Hopefully you know this by now. But when the scripture repeats something in short bursts, it's a really big deal. They really want you to pay attention. They really want you to grab a hold of the thought. Do not fret. Now, we won't take a pop quiz this morning. We won't do a show of hands to see who in the last week or so has fretted about something because we all fail that quiz. So do not fret. This is the the declaration that's given here at the beginning of verse 37 and through these first eight verses. Do not fret. And then he gives a thing to not fret about. Do not fret because of evildoers. Now, I have found in all the years of doing pastoral counsel... That there are three things that people fret about. Okay. About half the time. People fret about things that do not exist. Imaginary trouble that might happen. But probably won't. Let me just go ahead and be the first one to tell you. We all do it. But it's a total waste of time. There's really no good reason for us to burn emotional capital. Worrying about things that may or may not actually come to pass. So just don't do that. Like that's really one of those Bob Newhart psychology stop it's. Okay. If you've not seen the video, go to YouTube in the search bar type Bob Newhart stop it. It's hilarious. It's actually what I model all of my counseling after. So (laughs) when you are fretting over something that does not exist, that is ridiculous. Stop it. Okay, so that's about half of it. Now, the other half is usually split into two legitimate categories. Stuff that I have done that's not good, that's going to cause me problems. I fret about that. Or stuff that other people are going to do or have done that's not good, that's going to cause me or them problems. Now, those two categories are real. They're not imaginary. Like, I do things... That are not good. That cause me and other people problems. And because the Holy Spirit resides in me. Often I begin fretting about my misactions. And my bad deeds. And my sinning. And how that's hurting my life and the life of other people. Causes me stress and anxiety. When I am behaving in a way that is not becoming of the Lord. There's a solution to that one. It's called repentance. It's beautiful. 
We turn to the Lord. We ask for forgiveness. We ask the people that we've wounded through our actions for forgiveness. And then we move through the process of healing. That's a good thing to do. I shouldn't fret about that. I should move through the process of repentance. So what's the category that's left? Fretting about evildoers, the wickedness that other people do. Right here, David gives us some very sound advice. Do not fret because of evildoers. It is a waste of emotional capital. Why? Because there will always be evildoers always doing evil things that always make the world a hard place to live in. And if you spend your time fretting what evildoers are doing and thinking and are about, you will have no emotional room for hope, for joy or for peace. Because you'll always be worried about something that's never going to go away. This one is just as much of a problem as the imaginary one. I don't know if any of these things are going to happen, so I'm going to worry about all of them. Total waste of time. I know for sure that these things are going to happen and it's never going to go away. So I'm going to worry about it all the time. Total waste of time. Evildoers will always be there doing their evil things. Making the world a heartbroken place until the final redemption takes place. This is the world we live in. So David gives some excellent advice. Don't fret about evildoers. Now, think through the fretting that you've done in the past couple of weeks. Notice I didn't say if you have fretted. I know you have. Think about the fretting you have done in the past couple of weeks. It's either been over stuff that probably is never going to happen. Stuff that you messed up. Or stuff that some yahoo messed up. That there was nothing you were going to be able to do about that either. Because that's how the world is. There's one category of fretting that has any benefit at all. And it's when you recognize that you've done something wrong that you need to repent of. That's about the only one that's worth stressing yourself out about. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't fret. The Bible says this to us literally hundreds of times. Why? Because that's what we do. And we, like sheep who are silly, ridiculous animals, need constant reminders of the things that we're supposed to be about. And one of the things that we're not supposed to be about is being stressed out about stuff all the time. Man, I can feel I'm ringing some bells this morning. Uh, our old professor, he said, you've gone from preaching to meddling. So that's what I'm doing currently right now in this moment. This hits all of us deeply in our hearts. Because all of us struggle with this. When a psalm starts out with the words, do not fret, you already know it's going to be like, you know, one, two punches, one right after the other. Knockout blows just constantly coming your way for the rest of the psalm. I don't want to hear that because I fret a lot. I worry about stuff. I get anxious about things. Now, I keep it mysteriously bottled up on the inside and wear like a really stone-faced poker exterior where nobody knows that I'm fretting about anything, but it's there. In fact, my wife lovingly but jokingly told someone recently we were helping to put on a big event in the community and I was helping her do part of, of this thing that was happening and she looked over at one of the ladies that was running some stuff and she said, listen, I wear the stress for our family. That's what I do. She said that about herself. She said, I wear the stress for the family. She said, but if you see Philip getting stressed out, start running. <laughs> it's like a zombie apocalypse or somebody's invading. Like if he looks like he's getting stressed, something really bad has just happened. 
And it's true. I bury all of my fretting on the inside, but it's still there. It's still happening. I'm still worried about a lot of stuff. And so when I was studying for this, when I was prepping for this, I said, ah, nobody wants to hear this. But it's what we need to hear. So what are the two attitudes that we have? So don't fret because of evildoers. Okay. And in what ways do we fret toward the wicked? What attitudes do we have toward them? There are two very distinct attitudes that the righteous have toward the wicked. And they are these. First is anger. Being angry towards someone because of the way that they are, when you know that only the Lord can change them, is a version of fretting. It's a weird version of fretting, but it's a version of fretting. If you want to see it played out, and if you can't say amen, say ouch. If you want to see it played out, just take a look at how people talk about those who have differing opinions from them in the world of social media. Wait till some big elections coming up. And some person from the other side is running for a position in an office that you don't want them to have. And then see how people angrily respond to that evildoer over there through the abundance of fretting on social media posts. Again, if you can't say amen, say ouch. This is what we do. So one of the great responses to evildoers by way of fretting is to be angry with them. So mad. Or shockingly. To be envious of them. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Hmm. Hmm. Don't be envious toward them. Well, I wouldn't be envious of an evildoer, would you not? There was a gentleman. Uh, That's, you know, that's a stretch of a word, actually, for this guy. Um, There was a person who was a male several years ago who lived a remarkably debased life. Everything known about him was just filled with debauchery, just of the highest level. He made hundreds of. Of millions of dollars with the most grotesque kinds of offerings to the world. Yet everyone who was anyone knew him. I think at one point he was Time's Man of the Year. People wanted to be him. He threw these elaborate parties. People would come from miles around. Musicians, athletes, actors, Politicians all wanted to get their picture made with this guy. People envied him. Because he just seemed to have this real easy life. He built his wealth and his fame off the exploitation of other people. And it got to the point in his life, you know, he he reached midlife and I don't think he ever wore anything besides a bathrobe, ever. Like, he'd have these just, like, to the T parties where everybody's decked out in a tuxedo, except him. Wearing a robe. And every day he's making millions of dollars, exploiting people with the most gross kinds of stuff. And lots of people wanted to be him. And you look at a guy like that and you're mad at how evil a guy like that was. But then you're like, "Mm, I sure could use some of that money, though. 
Now, I wish people knew not my name like they knew his name. I wish everybody wanted to take their, have their picture made with me. It's really easy to become envious of evildoers, especially if they prosper in their wickedness. And the fretting becomes an anger at God rather than the evildoer. Rather than being mad at the evildoer, you become mad at God. God, why would you let somebody like that have so many advantages in this life instead of letting somebody like me or somebody like this person that I know who's really righteous, letting them have those kinds of advantages in this life because they would have done something good with it and this person's just squandering it. And now it's envy of the wicked and anger toward God. And fretting does this. Fretting does this. And so why should we avoid this? Why should we avoid anger with the evildoer and envy toward the evildoer? Because it says here in this text that the wicked will wither, the wicked will fade. There is a day of justice coming. Now that might not do a lot for you in the here and right now. But there is an ultimate justice That is coming. And no amount of prosperity, no amount of infamy, no amount of greatness established in this world and in this world order will do anything to benefit the evildoer on that day. And friends, we shouldn't be angry with the evildoer. We should feel pity toward them and compassion toward them. Because apart from the Lord Jesus Christ... By the grace of God, so go I. And I shouldn't be envious of the evildoer because while they may seem well established for a season, there's a great judgment that is coming. And David unfolds this further and we'll see it again in just a moment. And so what does he call upon the people of God to do in face of this? He calls upon them to trust in the Lord. Verse 3, how do you battle fretting? How do you battle fretting specifically toward evildoers and the wicked things that seem to keep spiraling out of control in our world? How do you do that? Very simple answer, very hard to live out. Trust in the Lord. When I am anxious and when I am fretting and when I am distressed and when I am fearful and when I am worried and when the source of my worry is the actions of those who do evil in this world, I have turned my eyes from the sovereign greatness of King Jesus and I have turned my eyes to the fickle and frail activities of man. And in that process, I have ceased to trust the Lord. I told you, any, any text that starts with do not fret is not going to be fun to listen to. So what do I need to do in this process of trusting the Lord? In verse 3, trust the Lord and do what? Do good. It's really hard to fret if you're busy. I had a conversation with a dear friend recently. We were concerned with another dear friend and some things that were happening in that person's life. My friend said to me, you know, I'm, I'm worried that that person has too much time on their hands. And that may be part of the source of what's causing them some of their fretting is the idleness that they've got. Trust the Lord and just sit there and glory in your trust of the Lord. No. Trust the Lord and what? Do good. 
There's a lot of things in the world that we should be busy with. Not busy for busyness sake, but we should be about the business of the Lord. There are over 100 one another statements in the New Testament of how believers should treat one another. And encourage each other to good works and good deeds and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is a call to make great the name of Jesus throughout the nations. And so there's a work of evangelism that is to be done. There's a call for discipleship and for prayer that is for every individual and for us corporately. Where we should know the Lord and make him known. That we should understand his word. That we should pray without ceasing. There is ample good to be done in the place of fretting over evildoers. Trust the Lord and do good. Well, what good should I do? There's plenty to go around. And if your life is filled up with those good things the Lord would have you to do, you've started to greatly run out of room for capital to be fretting about what all the evildoers are doing all the time. And you're not all that worried about it anyway because you're trusting the Lord and what he's going to do in the lives of those people and in your life as his history unfolds. Not only should we do good, but we should also cultivate faithfulness. It says here, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And just just to make it very clear, because this psalm talks a lot about inheritance of the land and dwelling in the land and being in the land and God giving the people a land. This is not a land psalm. Please don't turn this into an inheritance of Israel psalm. That's not what this is. Dwell in the land and cultivate the soil. Not what it says. Dwell on the land and do what? Cultivate faithfulness. This is a spiritual metaphor of the promised land of the presence of the almighty God. If you're dwelling in a land and it's only about the land, you cultivate the soil. If you're dwelling in the presence of God and it's about cultivating your character and the spiritual life that he's given you, then guess what you cultivate? You cultivate faithfulness. Loyalty and commitment to the things of the Lord. That's the calling that we have. Instead of fretting about evildoers and being envious of what they seem to have. Instead, let's trust the Lord and do good and cultivate our loyalty to him. That's what our call is. And then one of my favorite verses in all of the scripture. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. There's been a couple of generations now that have been hamstrung by indecision. What do the kids call it today? Hashtag FOMO, fear of missing out. You can't ever get anybody to commit to anything because a better offer might come up at the 11th hour. Hey, we're all having a get together over our house Saturday at 7. Do you want to come? It's Monday. You're calling because, you know, the world I lived in, you didn't make plans last minute. You like tried to make plans ahead of time. Give people plenty of time to make a decision if they want to come or not. And so, hey, it's, you know, the Saturday before, a few days before. We go, hey, we're all having a get together. You want to come? Uh, well, let me let me get back to you on that. You know what? For those of you who are over the age of 35, I'll give you a clue, um, translation. OK, if somebody under the age of 35 says to you, hey, I need to check on that. Let me get back to you. If they're married and it's the husband, he means he needs to ask his wife. That's translation one. If it's the wife or they're unmarried, what it means is I need to give it a few more days to see if I get a better offer to go do something else. Now, if you're under 35 and I just offended you, I'm sorry, but that's what y'all do. And it's not cool. Don't do that. I might get a better offer. That's a terrible way to view people. 
give you the desires of your heart. Say, Philip, where are you going with that? I'm just being rude on that one. But what I'm really trying to do... Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. I love this verse because it talks about the shared will of God with us. If I am genuinely trusting the Lord, if I'm genuinely doing that which is good, if I'm genuinely cultivating faithfulness, that by extension means I have delighted myself in the Lord And he will give me the desires of my heart. There should not be a spirit of indecisiveness among the believer. Here's the thing. We are all presented with two kinds of choices. You have the choice of this is a wrong thing to do. Are you going to do it? And by the way, the answer is always no, I should not do that. It's wrong. There's several things laid out in the scripture that are very clear. Hey, I'm married to this other person and this person wants me to leave them and be married to them instead. Wrong. Don't do that. It's very clear. Now, the rest of the stuff that we're presented with in life are two good choices. There's nothing wrong with either one of them. Choice A is really good. Choice B is also really good. And what happens with so many Christians is we enter into this idolatry of indecision. I can't decide what good thing I'm going to do. Well, what a first world problem we have here. I had a professor one time. I had two churches that were wanting me to come work for them. And I had a professor. I went to ask, I don't know which church I should go to. And he said, well, are you walking with the Lord? I said, yes. He said, do you have any secret sin that you're hiding from everybody? Are you kind of up on your repentance, so to speak? I said, sure, yeah. He said, do you believe that God's sovereign? I said, yes. He said, well, then go do the one you want to do. I said, wait, we do what? He said, which one do you want to go work for? I said, that seems like a crazy way to make a decision. He said, it's a biblical way to make a decision. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If there's something that you want to do and God's opening the door for you to do it, then just go do it. And then trust God that he's sovereign, that if he didn't want you to do it, he won't let you go do it. But don't sit in the back, twiddling your thumbs, fretting back to what the whole point of this section's about. What should I do? Because that's actually a manifestation of not trusting God and living in sin. I told y'all when the psalm starts this way, it's not comfortable for anybody. And then what do you do once you delight yourself in the Lord and he gives you the desire of your heart? You commit your way to the Lord. And I know some of you are very stressed right now because we're on verse five and we've been in this 23 minutes and we've got, you know, 37 more verses to go. So we'll get there, I promise. This first first eight verses is the hardest part of the psalm. And then he couples it, David does, with a parallel of trusting in the Lord again. Trust in the Lord. And notice what happens when we trust in the Lord. No, I love this. This is beautiful. You commit your way to the Lord, verse 5. End of verse 5. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will do what? All of it. God, Listen, friend. God's the one doing the work. 
And whenever it seems like you're the one doing the work, it's God doing the work by way of his spirit through you. We are participants in this by way of someone leading and guiding and acting. We're the bench warmer who never played in the game and gets to wear the championship ring because our starter guys won the championship. And for the whole rest of your life, though you never played one single minute for the whole season, you get to tell everybody until the day you die that you won a championship. You know why? Because that's how that works. That's how that works. You know how many people have, are going to ride Michael Jordan's coattails into the Hall of Fame? We know guys' names that we should not know because they played with him. Jesus has brought us onto his team and he's doing all the work. He's fighting all the fights. He's winning all the battles and he's just letting us participate in his victories. Trust in the Lord. He will do it. And when we're fretting, guess what that means? We're trying to do it. And so he says again two more times at the end of this text, do not fret. And I want you to hear something that's just brutal. He says, don't fret. And again, he talks about the wicked doer because of the one who prospers and the man who carries out wicked schemes. And then there's a call. There is a command. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Stop being mad about it all the time. Do not fret. Hear this this morning. I don't even need to give any exposition to this. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. The thing that you're trying to avoid. Being like the evildoer. When you keep fretting. You open up the doorway of your heart and your life to be like the evildoer. That's what happens. It only leads to participating in the evil doing. Which was what you were angry about and envious of and trying to avoid in the first place. It's a vicious cycle. So. Do not fret. So let's blitz through. The righteous versus the wicked. Verses 9 through 26. There is a comparison of those who trust in the Lord and those who are evildoers. If we're not going to fret about evildoing, we've got to be able to identify the thing that we're not fretting about. So, let's take a look and see what it says here. First and foremost, in verse 9, evildoers will be cut off. The language of cut off in the Old Testament has a couple of different meanings. The primary 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 one being... That there is a separation of both covenant and covenant blessing from an individual's life. There's these people who should be participating in the covenant. And they should be receiving the blessings of having participated in that covenant. And they are now cut off from access to being able to participate in both that covenant and its blessings. The evildoers will be cut off. However, in contrast, those who wait for the Lord, the righteous, will inherit the land. And in the Old Testament, the idea of having land inheritance, particularly the promised land inheritance, was an outward sign, a picture of this covenantal reality. Because most, if not all, of the covenantal realities and blessings took place 
in that promised land. It's where the tabernacle was. It's where the temple was eventually built. It's where the different allotments of space were given. It's where the sacrificial animals were raised. It's, it was a demonstration of God's favor was still with the people or not, because if they weren't in the land, guess what? God's favor was not with them. They've been carried off into exile and, and et cetera, et cetera. So let's run through. I want to, I want you to see from verses nine down through about 27 or 26 of, of these comparisons between the righteous and the wicked. So David begins moving through some thoughts, some ideas. The wicked will be no more, but the humble will inherit the land. Not having a permanent place is a demonstration in the scripture of the curse of God. And the wicked, if they cannot be found, means they've been cursed by God. It says here as we continue that the wicked plots against the righteous. Friends, I hope you know this. The wicked actively plots against the righteous. A person who loves wickedness does not want righteousness around them. And they will do whatever they need to do to make sure righteousness does not stay around them. It is a very rare, very rare occurrence for someone who loves wickedness to endure the presence of someone who loves righteousness. It can happen, but it's very rare. And so the wicked plots against the righteous, but the Lord intervenes on behalf of the righteous ones. It says, as you continue, that the wicked have a sword and a bow, but God and his justice will use those weapons against the wicked. The wicked's own sword will go in his heart. His bow will be broken. It says here, as you continue, that better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. The old saying goes from some of the Puritans long ago. It's better to be a pauper in the kingdom of God than a rich man in the city of man. Because your wealth will not save you. Of course, if you were to follow that all the way through, there are no paupers in the kingdom of God. We are all spiritually wealthy beyond our imaginations. Because the greatness of Christ is now ours as a gift. We are seated on thrones with him, crowned and robed in his glory and life. And, and by the way, that's, that's the little of the righteous. I haven't even scratched the surface yet of how great the abundance of the righteous actually is. That's the little of the righteous. It's far superior than the abundance of many wicked. The arms... Those things that are used for violence and for work of the wicked will be broken. They will not be able to continue in their paths of wickedness. However, the Lord sustains the righteous. He is our arms and he is the one who does the work for us. The righteous receive an eternal inheritance while the wicked perish. The distinction that we see here is that between greed and generosity. Yes, greed on the part of the wicked. Yes, generosity on the part of the righteous, but even greater greed on the part of the wicked, generosity on the part of the Lord toward the righteous. Have you ever thought of this? It convicts my soul deeply when I think of it. 
the generosity of God toward me. That he gave his son on my behalf. He didn't have to. I think we often forget that theological truth. God could have left us in our sin. But in his sovereign, hidden, providential wisdom and will gave his son in our place. Mm. The righteous have established steps. And I love this phrase that's used here. It's magnificent. It's in verse 24. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, the righteous. Why? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. (laughs) You know, when you get older... And I've been able to reflect on this as my children have gotten older and as I've gotten older and as family members of mine have gotten older. When you're little, little, you want mom or dad to hold your hand because the world's a big, scary place. And every once in a while, you get big enough that you think you can handle it without mom and dad holding your hand anymore. You try to step out in this great big world on your own. And if your life was like mine, you took a few lumps when you did that. And then as you get a little bit older, and if God's really, really kind to you, he gives you somebody whose hand you want to hold. Even when you don't need to. It's just a nice thing to do. And then as you get a little bit older, you don't want to admit it, but sometimes you need help. You need a little stability. You're really glad when somebody reaches that hand out for you when you're trying to pull your bad knees up off of the ground after doing some yard work because you can't quite get up on your own the way that you used to be able to. And then that classic picture, chivalry, of, quote, helping the old lady across the street. Friends, here's the thing. In our spiritual lives... We are always the small child or the old lady. We cannot cross through this world in our own strength. God must hold our hand and he does. You will not fall and be hurled headlong. Because the Lord is the one who holds your hand. Not so for the wicked. Remember, their arms are broken. They have no hand to hold. But God holds our hand and it's beautiful. God, verses 25 and 26, make this statement and it's so understated, but it's so profound. God is good to his righteous ones. Friends, I don't know what you are going through right now. I don't know what all you're dealing with right now. I don't know what sort of sorrow and suffering you're facing. I don't know what kinds of things are right in front of you that you have to fret about in this moment. But what I know based on the word of God to be true is this. We should not fret. We should trust the Lord because God is good to his righteous 
wants. And so what should we do with that? As we close this morning, what should we do with that? Verses 27 through 40 close in a very beautiful way. Very succinct. A lot of verses that repeat a lot of the same stuff can be narrowed down to just a few thoughts. We should depart from evil and do good. It is, hear me this morning. I can't say this more emphatically. It is evil to fret. Depart from evil and do good. That's the key of 27. All the way down through 40. 27 says it explicitly. 40 uh, through 40 fleshes it out. So how does it get fleshed out? Verse 28. The Lord loves justice. These evildoers, these evildoers, these evildoers are always getting away with it. They're always so prosperous. They're always so successful. Everybody wants to be them. Everything seems to go their way. They're able to work the system so bad, so bad, so bad. It's always just it just sound like election season. Yeah, that's just basically how it sounds. So bad. Fret, 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 fret. And we forget that the Lord loves justice. They will not get away with it. They won't. They won't. Friends, God deals with the human heart sin condition in one of two ways and one of two ways only. He redeems it and saves it or he condemns it and judges it. That's it. There's no middle ground. Our God is not a Greek God that can be bought off. He's not one of the ancient Egyptian gods or Babylonian gods that you bury your goods with so you can carry him into the afterlife and do a payoff for all the wrong things you did so he'll turn a blind eye to your wickedness. Our God loves justice. And he is a God of justice. And I'm spending all of this emotional capital fretting over the work of these evildoers when in fact God is the one who says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Why would I be stressed out about something God said he's already going to do? Because I don't trust in the Lord like I should. Depart from evil and do good. You know what? It's good to trust in the Lord. And then notice what it says as it continues to push forward. Verse 30, he talks about the mouth of the righteous. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. As I pursue the Lord, as I flee from fretting, as I embrace the good life that God would have for me in Christ, my mouth, the utterances of my very soul begin to reflect the will and the greatness and the glory and the excellencies and the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Almighty God. Friends, what is your speech look like today? What do your conversations look like today? Is it full of fretting? Is it full of anxiety? Is it full of stress? Is it full of worry? Is it full of envy of evildoers? Is it full of anger against those people who act this way? Or is it an expression of the utterance of wisdom because you trust in the Lord? From the mouth, we see the depths of the heart. There should be a transformation of speech because there's a transformation of life. Why? As we continue. 
Because in verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart. I don't need a list of 613 laws written down that I can go through and check and see how I'm doing. What I need is a stony heart removed and a heart of flesh to replace it. And the glory of Christ to reside within where my longing is his majesty to be made known. The law of God's heart, the law of God written on my very heart. And finally, if you were to push from there to about the very end of the chapter. Verse 39 in particular. Salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Friend, this morning, if you claim the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, if he is your king, if he is your Lord, if you have repented of your sins, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, his completed righteous work on the cross, his destruction and overthrow of the kingdom of darkness, his conquest of sin, his giving to you life that you never could earn and did not deserve and cannot throw away because he holds you in the very hand of God by his own power. If this Christ is your Christ, he is your salvation. What do you have to fret about? And I'm not being trite when I say that. Your whole world could be caving in on you right now. And if you have Christ Jesus, you have more than enough. Because the little of the righteous is far greater than the abundance of many wicked. What's the question that Jesus asked? What does it do? What good does it do a man? If he were to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Friends, I might come to the table of the Lord Jesus as a beggar. And I did. And I do. But he does not leave me that way. And he clothes me in glory and crowns me with righteousness and allows me to feast at his banquet table. And he seats me on a throne with him. And that's just for starters. That's the salvation that Jesus gives us. Who is the wicked man that I should fear him? What is it that the evil man can do to me? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the security that we have in this life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that for our good and his glory, he is a gracious, saving priest and king. 
Father, forgive every single one of us. Every single one of us. Start with me, Lord. Forgive me for the amount of fretting that I do in this life. I, like Peter, turn my eyes away from my Savior and toward the waves that would consume me. And I fall and I drown and I have to reach my hand up and cry out, Lord, save me. And Father, thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is abundantly compassionate and he reaches down and he saves and he delivers. Yet he challenges my lack of faith and I thank you for it. Father, this morning, be gracious to me and all who hear this this morning. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to believe that you are God. Forgive us when we worship the idols of our everyday fears. Forgive us when we elevate the false idol of worry and doubt. Father, teach us this morning to trust you and to do good. And we thank you in advance for the work you will do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we will be preparing to take the Lord's table together. There are some elements at the back and the front if you need to take a moment to get those. And in just a moment, we will share in that together. This morning, as we prepare to share in the Lord's table together, a reading from 1 Corinthians, uh, midway through chapter 11, about the Lord's table together. Paul says, beginning in verse 18, 4, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For you are, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. The one is hungry, the other is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was portrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this 
as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. This morning, as we prepare to share in the elements together, it's a weighty thing that the scripture calls us to do. So I encourage you to take the bread which is representative of the body of Christ. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat all of it. Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was broken for us, that we may be made whole. Father, we thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sins in his own body. By his wounding, by his stripes, by his bruising, we are healed. Father, I thank you that his brokenness has brought about our unity. Christ Jesus is torn apart that we might be brought together. Father God, I pray that this common unity that we have in Christ Jesus, in the gospel, will be the greatest binding element among all of us. This shared reality of being in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I also invite you to take the cup. As says here, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Take and drink all of it. Father God, we thank you that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood for us that he has covered us with his blood, that we have been redeemed and forgiven. Those of us who are far off have been brought near. Father, this blood, this testimony of the gospel is what binds us together. Father, in spite of our great differences, in spite of our great perspectives that vary, in, in spite of our different upbringings and our backgrounds, and our places of work, our levels of education, our ethnic backgrounds, our social situations, Father, we thank you that above all of these, we have been brought together as a family of faith by the blood of Christ. Father, let that bond be a bond of love, a love for Christ and a love in Christ and a love through Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand as we sing the Lord's Prayer together and then we'll be dismissed.